DC Signal to Noise. I'm John Harris. Welcome to another Friday, along with Jim Wiesmeyer from Pro Farmer. And did we get to hear from Muffin this week? Nope. She's uh, locked out now. She's upstairs uh, on her throne. Oh, oh well. <laughs> yeah, Muffin the cat made a surprise appearance last week, and they're so wondering if she was going to uh, uh, appear back here. But that's all right. We've got plenty to talk about uh, in this DC Signal to Noise. Hopefully, you're joining us on the live broadcast on the AgriTalk Facebook page. We do this every Friday afternoon at 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central. Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, try joining us live next week, 2 p.m. Eastern on that AgriTalk Facebook page. Um, and be sure to join us next week because, uh, Jim, we've got a, a specialist joining us. We talked last week a little bit about some of the possible tax changes and how they could impact farms. Well, you and I are not tax experts, so we found a tax expert. And uh, Paul Niefer, the uh, farm CPA, is going to join us next Friday on the chat. Yes, and he can talk taxes and speak English at the same time, so you can understand him. And and that stepped-up basis, possibly losing it, was other than price outlook, was the you know key question I got in Osage Beach, you know, Missouri, at the Missouri Pork uh, Association conference. So it's 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 right up there on 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 the topic farmers and ranchers want to know about. Yeah, you uh, you got out and about for the first time. Um, for those of us who are still locked inside, what was it like? It was, I just, I liked it more than I thought I would. Delta Airlines has done a very good job of, of protecting from what I saw. I mean, you got a lot of, uh, you know, you know um, material to wash your hands. Uh, uh, when you, uh, you know, uh, you know, join the plane during the plane ride, etc. They were very careful there. And of course, I you know rented a car from St. Louis and drove down, and it was uh, the you know the the old Tantera, which is called Margaritaville Resorts, you know, did a very good job as well. I noticed a lot of Missouri, you know, pork producers didn't wear a mask, but I think that's really? an element of the region. Yeah, that's a, so yeah. I was a little disconcerned about that, but I was very careful. I was very careful. Oh, that's that's an interesting observation. Uh, from down there. Um, well, let's get to, let's get to the list here, and well, let's start off with um, the Tom Vilsack confirmation hearing. It, it was very evident from the the absolute beginning that um, he was warmly received on both sides of the aisle in that committee. In fact, both sides were talking uh, at length about the letters of support that they got from ag organizations uh, for the nomination of Tom Vilsack. Um, so, no. No overly tough questions, I didn't think, Jim. And and Tom Vilsack um, answered every one of their questions in the way you would hope a nominee would answer the questions um, in a way that seemed to uh, appeal to that individual senator um, and and didn't uh, fall through any trap doors for anyone in the administration. No, and, and he did at the beginning. He got serious when he said it was a different time He's a different person, and it's a different USDA. So that was kind of the signal there that this is just not going to be a, a repeat of his his first term, because as we know, a lot of a lot of the issues have changed, and USDA has changed. And I know the the Senate Ag Committee wants him to come back when he can when he can do it not virtually, but in in front of the panel so that'll that'll be a you know a, a, a date to be determined john yes there's a, yeah he he started off uh noting um what ship flory note, noted earlier that uh probably no coincidence that his confirmation hearing was on groundhog groundhog day as he looked to make his return to usda but then he yeah pivoted as you said into uh a monologue about how the he's different usda is different and the times are different um and then launched into a list of priorities, which were addressing COVID, which were addressing uh, food inequality, addressing racial and other inequalities in, in areas touched by USDA, and of course, uh, addressing climate change. Yeah, and he voluntarily raised the subject of on the on the racial uh, issues. And, and he noted that he met with black farmer uh, groups in December after they were critical, a number of them, not all, of, of, of his pick. And uh, th that's going to be one of the you know top uh, uh, issues as we've talked about before. And he hit climate change hard, uh, uh, saying that yes, he wants to use USDA's 
Commodity Credit Corporation for climate change actions. And that'll likely mean to me uh, when he said, but we don't want it to negatively impact the normal use of CCC relative to farm program benefits. That's the Conservation Reserve Program, ARC, PLC, et cetera. Now that tells me that was the clear signal that he wants a higher borrowing authority, John. It's currently at $30 billion. And you'll recall Farm Bureau and others wanted to, last year, wanted to increase that maximum borrow authority, uh, what, from, you know, 50 to 60, you know, billion dollars. So I I would watch that in appropriation bills ahead. Yeah, and indeed, like you said, spoke very strongly about using that CCC money in some fashion. We don't know exactly what it is yet, but in some fashion to uh, build up um, a carbon market program for farmers. Um, and interestingly, uh, um, Robert Bonney, who uh, is, uh, I can't remember exactly which position he's going into in the new USDA. Climate change advisor, I think. Yeah, something like that. And he, and he was the author of a lot of the climate ch- change documentation for um, the, the transition and for the campaign. Um, and I saw him on a panel with uh, Agree, yes. um, the ag group this week, and talking about that um, they're looking, they don't want just a carbon exchange. They want a whole toolbox of, of items available to farmers and ranchers so they can pick and choose what climate actions make the most financial sense for them. Yes, and there's going to be multi-months where they're going to meet with different groups, which I think is smart. I mean, they provide no details right away because they don't have them. So they're going to go out and sound out the uh, all facets of the industry for at least two months, I think he said. Well, isn't there a danger here of, I mean, I get what they're trying to do, but is there a danger of USDA getting in the way of private industry that's trying to do some of the same things right now? Well, there's always that danger, but they're used to dealing with uh, private government, uh, you know, programs. So let's hope that they do the case. I mean, you see that in the crop insurance industry all the time that, that, you know, they mesh, uh, you know, quite well. But it better be more industry oriented because that's where I think farmers and ranchers will get more comfort uh, that it's going to be a, a more liquid program. Uh, and and more to their you know particular state or you know region level, John. Uh, but so I think it's going to be shared. All right now, uh, Vilsack is not uh, his confirmation has not come to the full Senate floor yet. Uh, nothing to read into that. It's the the Senate has been distracted by uh, some other issues, most notably trying to get their organizational resolution passed through, which they uh, did yesterday. Um, because of the 50-50 split in the Senate, it becomes a, a little bit more difficult to uh, determine exactly what the rules are. Um, but, you know, you know, we expect it, uh, quite frankly, here any moment, don't we, Jim? Well, they pulled a, a, a virtual all-nighter last night in the Senate going into the budget resolution. But, you know, I, I don't know whether they'll get to Vilsack even this coming week. Uh, I'm not going to rule it out. Uh, because they can always squeeze it in at a particular time. But uh, recall that beginning Tuesday, they're going to begin the trial, uh, you know, on uh, uh, on the debate side on former President Donald Trump. And while that won't take all day each day, it will chew through a lot of the uh, time, John. And then you have uh, side meetings going on on this up to $1.9 trillion COVID aid package that they're going to have to put it into implementing, you know, legislation. Uh, You know, we'll talk about that later on. So uh, again, bottom line, while I can't rule it uh, out, I definitely can't rule it in. But bottom line, he's going to be, he's going to be approved. So it's just a matter of time. Yeah, it is. Um, And well, first of all, before we get into uh, EPA and Michael uh, Regan, anything else uh, you observed on the Vilsack hearing uh, yeah. of notes. Absolutely. What caught some people by surprise is is when he was asked about mandatory cool. And I think we discussed this before, but I think he'll keep a, a, at least an open ear to some of the 
uh, groups who want him to, it's not NCBA, but some cattle groups who want him to go back to mandatory cool. Now, Vilsack was very cautious, and he said, you know, mandatory country of origin labeling, he'll listen to it, but it has to be World Trade Organization compliant because, you know, Canada has the ability to hit the U.S. with the $1 billion in retaliation if that program is resurrected and not seen as WTO compliant. And Sean Haney told us this morning on AgriTalk that it's the U.S. side that has to prove that it's WTO compliant. So this issue is not going to go away. I think it'll surface. I think that it's going to be a bugaboo to make it WTO compliant, John. That's my bias. And uh, on that one, and unless you have any 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 other comments, he he, he mentioned uh, biofuels and trade a lot. On biofuels, yeah. Vilsack uh, made it very clear he wants to be an active voice with both the uh, EPA and the and the Energy Department on biofuels and and even working with those you know agencies and departments relative to electric vehicles. And uh, that's when he point blank said something that Chip Floria says for years, uh, that ethanol's ability to boost octane and fuel and the need for infrastructure to support those higher blends. So he, he knows a lot about biofuel. So it's good to see it at that level, John. Well, and also talked about, you know, pointed out his four focus that dates back to you know, what, nine years old or something like that now, and, and how that is going to be the case for some time that, you know, we're not going to see an overnight flip to electric vehicles. So that there needs to be a future for biofuels uh, in that transition, in addition to uh, new engineering to take advantage of the octane boost of, of biofuels. Absolutely. You know, on a timeline, I'll, I get asked that a lot. When, when will we see the big progression to e, uh, electric you know, vehicles, EVs? And, you know, I noticed this week, let's connect dots. General Motors said that they're going to spend, what, $27 billion or so to try to uh, target uh, the, 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 the total move to EVs in 2035. So I think that's a good timeline, about 15 years to really get the progress uh, where the majority of new cars, at least, you know, being sold could be uh, EVs. Then we saw... Apple, which I love Apple products, uh, they're working or trying to work out a deal with uh, uh, with uh, an automobile. Kia, yeah. yeah, Kia. So you, once you see Apple getting into any market, you know that it has growth. And of course, I would buy it no matter what, just because it's Apple. The other one I will tell you is that last w weekend, yeah, it was last weekend, I went to look uh, at a uh, at a Tesla again, and then I've got two neighbors who have them, so I covet them. I love them. However, <laughs> both of them have told me the only downside is when they, when, not if, it's when they break down, it takes a while to get them fixed because of either the lack of manpower, John, and things like that. So that kind of turned me off short term. So I'm looking at a at another either a hybrid or a regular uh, uh, SUV again, usually Hyundai because there's so much you know car for the money. So I'm pro and I'm not your normal person, but I'm a believer in EVs. But I'm going to hold off a little because I don't think the infrastructure is there, both on the uh, on the grid and the and the structure of having people to work on the EVs in, in the quantities that we need, John. Yeah, and I'm in a little different situation here because I'm in a university town. So there is a there is a Tesla charger about everywhere you go around the corner. Wow in this town. Uh, so I don't think the infrastructure is as much of a problem. But I think from my perspective, I think when you're going to see the big change is when there is a an electric vehicle that can go 300 miles on a charge. It can be charged to go 300 miles in 15 minutes or less um, and costs around $35,000. Yeah, and uh, it'll happen to me. It's not yeah. a question of if, it's when when that happens because the history of the auto industry tells you that but i'm not going to i'm not going to be too negative even on the combustible engines because of the uh, there's further technology that can happen in in that environment and and even in the overall fuels uh 
industry. I, I'm reading a book that I would encourage everyone to read. It's Daniel Jurgen's book. It's called The New Map. And he goes through some of these questions that we're discussing. And there's no better expert on energy markets and crude oil and now electric you know, vehicles. And it just gives you a better understanding of how long it's going to take and things like that. Yeah. So I would highly recommend you know, reading the book. All right. Well, getting back to the, the matter at hand, uh, Vilsack was very animated when he talked about the renewable fuel standard and pushing back on EPA uh, on uh, the RFS and that he is going to be talking with his counterpart at EPA quite a bit uh, about the future of that. Um, jumping back to country of origin labeling, I was surprised at how animated he was about that um, because I I didn't think he was that passionate about it. Um, when he dealt with it in his last term. I mean, I know we put forward several propo pro, uh, proposals on country of origin labeling that ended up not being WTO compliant, but um, he did not appear to have that kind of passion for it back then. You mean for it? For it, yeah. For it. Here's the difference that I'm beginning to see. It's just a theory right now. But I, there's a different personnel, in, of course, in the Democratic Party now, more left, uh, the more their populist uh, areas as well than was the case when uh, he first came in under the Obama administration. So the timing may be better for some of these issues than it was the first few years of the Obama administration. And I say that in regards to, you listen to almost every Democrat, and I heard it in the Senate Ag Committee, you hear the word small producer small firms a lot. Now, remember, um, uh, you know, Vilsack's first year in his term, I know, you know, Pro Farmer didn't give him good marks. He rallied right. and became a very good ag secretary. But his first year, he tended to focus on the 80% of farmers who produce 20% of the crops, or, you know, production. Then he shifted to the 20% of the industry that produces 80% of the production of crops and meat. And that was a fundamental change. I'm not quite so sure he wants to, he doesn't want to go back to that, not saying he'll just totally dismiss, you know, dismiss production agriculture, but I think he wants to focus on that first group to make sure that they have the, the number of programs that he said to, to make sure, and this bridges into the racial issues as well, that there's no inequality, uh, uh, equity issues relative to, you know, certain programs to the smaller operator and to, uh, you know, and, and to minorities. So I, th I'm going to, I'm going to see how this plays out, John. Well, as you and I have talked before, um, those are the issues that are really close to the heart for him when you talk about, you know, now the, the racial inequity um, and, and other inequities within uh, government programs, um, local food systems, um, local nutrition programs. Um, so now that he's got a chance to come back, I think he's probably going to go to those issues that are at the heart for him. That doesn't mean he's going to ignore the others, as you said, but, but I think he sees this as a chance to really um, make more of a difference in those those issues that are close to his heart. Yes, and you know why did he come back in? We 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 raised that issue before. You know here he was making let's call it around a million dollars. He had done the job eight years, and and we heard near the end he was getting frustrated. He didn't have enough to do, or he was he was not bored, but you know right, almost. Yeah. So why did he come back in? Uh, the Biden people have told us initially he turned down Biden. And right. then Biden came back. Now, that's going to be interesting. Why did he come back? I think he was given not total carte blanche, but a lot of leeway into choosing the spots that uh, he and he and President you know, Biden talked about. So and I think that's what he wanted. He wanted the free reign. Yeah. And from Biden's perspective, uh, Tom Vilsack solves a lot of or solved a lot of problems that Biden had with that nomination um, in, in some of the factionalism that was going on. But, um, you know, with uh, Marsha Fudge uh, initially campaigning very loudly for the position, yeah. um, you bring in a Tom Vilsack and, and 
you know, there's not much argument of whether or not he can do the job and, and should be the right person for the job. Well, yes. And Chuck Grassley, Republican from Iowa, said point blank he couldn't remember one time in the eight years that, that Obama was secretary that they had a, a, an argument. So that speaks one thing yeah. right there. Right that, there. that does. <laughs> yeah. And, and and you had two Republicans from his home state, uh, Grassley and uh, Joni Ernst, yes. introduce him in very glowing terms. So yes. Yes. you knew it was going to be a pretty quick uh, confirmation uh, hearing as it was. Um, all right. Well, let's turn to the other big confirmation hearing. And that was Michael Regan, uh, nominee for um, EPA. Um, again, no, no big explosions there handled himself, uh, for the most part, pretty well. He did face a little more fire than Tom Vilsack yes. did in a couple of places. Yeah. You know, a little sidebar here. I called, uh, the North Carolina department that Michael Regan, uh, you know, works at and asked, is it Reagan or Regan? And they made no uncertain terms. It's Regan. Regan. Yeah. yeah. So I just called his own department. I will say that I thought there was more substance in the in the Vilsack, uh, you know, confirmation hearing than the Regan one. And I'll also say that uh, uh, Regan kept on going back to the same lines, like he wants to bring stakeholders together on several issues. He'll follow the law. He'll be transparent. All that is good. But boy, I don't know how many times he said that on, on under the but, topic. But that's usual fodder for a confirmation hearing. I mean, that's, yes. you know, everybody's trying to avoid going too far out on a limb. That's the whole purpose of a, yes. or the whole goal of testifying. Well, it shows you how comfortable though Vilsack was to get some details out there, yeah, as opposed yeah. to a new newcomer. And I'll give it to Re—he he was he he was very happy. I mean, he was happy, Michael, when you could see him. So he he had the passion. He can't wait to come in. Now, what was his thing? You know, uh, other than those you know stakeholders and you know be at the table and things like that. He gave no specifics, nor should he, of how he would have handled those small refinery waiver requests under the Renewable Fuel Standard Program, John. And and he did say that EPA would seek, was his word, to undo uh, the Trump-era revisions to the Obama administration's waters of the U.S. rule. But yet he didn't fully commit to reinstating the Obama standards without change. So th there's, uh, you know, caveats all over the place there, but he didn't punt that issue off. He just said, he gave the clear signal that they they, they, they want to review it and they want to go back yeah. to some parts of the, uh, of the Wotus rule. But committed to talking to farm groups um, about that. And I, farm groups need to hold him, hold his feet to the fire on that, that they do have a voice uh, on that. And, and and uh, EPA does need to have an effective voters rule in place, as we've discussed, you know, before when this was an issue, uh, because there is a court case that says that they have to define uh, what the jurisdiction of uh, the uh, Clean Water Act is. Yes. Um, so they, they've got to have something. Um, and so ag needs to be uh, in the room to try to uh, make sure that that is a whatever they end up with is a workable solution for agriculture. We need clarity. Yeah, we need clarity. We do need clarity. And there was one thing that I know farmers and ranchers w wanted to hear, and I don't think a lot of people reported on this, but Regan has said that he was looking for funding within his budget to appoint both an ag advisor and an environmental justice advisor who would report directly to him. So I would watch that in the future. Yeah, that'll be interesting. It'll be a key position to have at EPA and be interesting to see what the relationship yes. uh, with that person would be with USDA. Yes. And I will tell you that a question a farmer that, that a Missouri farmer gave me was spot on. He said on, on Vilsack, who is he going to be able to pick his sub cabinet or is he going to be told who to get? And and I and I told the uh, young person, I said, you're an astute person. The verdict is still out on that, but we're going to judge that. We're going to see, you know, the types of people that come in, because as I believe, uh, uh, you know, Vilsack is going to be a transition ag secretary. So I think he's got another position either in the administration that he'll go to or some other stuff. But uh, I see two years or so, and then that's it. So it's going to be very important, those sub-cabinet positions, John. Well, and interesting that uh, in the appointments at USDA that we've seen so far, 
Um, not really many, if any, close Vilsack allies that you would expect to see named for some of those other positions at USDA. No. And so that's where they're checking off certain things of uh, who helped the campaign or regional balance and things like that. But as I think we've talked about her before, you know, uh, Jewel, uh, you know, bro now, uh, is is a good person, it looks to me, on, on her background. Uh, she yeah. comes from my current home state of Virginia. She's had experience as a state executive director of Farm Service Agency. She, she run the uh, Ag Commissioner's Department in, uh, in Virginia. She was the director of the School of Agriculture at Virginia State University, and she's done a lot on rural mental health. So that adds up to me to a good portfolio for your deputy secretary. Indeed. Um, back on, on Regan, um, again, it was noted multiple times by multiple senators from both sides of the aisle that they had heard repeatedly from agriculture uh, that Regan's nomination had their support. Um, so again, set a, a very strong tone uh, in yes. that way going into that hearing. Well, he, he, he was very, uh, he coordinated with the North Carolina pork producers under some sensitive issues. So he's got a good track history when it comes to the state uh, environmental issues. Yeah, indeed. All right. Um, well, what, uh, getting back to WOTUS, what do you think the path forward is on this, uh, do, do you think agriculture stands a chance of coming out of this with a satisfactory definition? I think so. Uh, the reason you had a, a, a it was non-binding when you really think about it. I don't want to get too wonky, but uh, it, last night they had what we call a votorama in the in the in the in the discussion of the budget resolution in the Senate. One of the quote approved non-binding amendments was was to support. President Trump's uh, uh, language relative to this issue, his work, and 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 a number of Democrats crossed over to vote for it, John. And I think right. that's a signal. That's a signal. And I think once they get into the weeds on this one, uh, they'll learn what a sensitive uh, topic this is. Yeah, and that while they may not like everything of the the Trump era definition, there are some things that were very workable for U.S. agriculture in that definition. Absolutely, absolutely. So, uh, while you're going to have your environmental activist uh, really wanting to go back to the credo of the of the WOTUS, I just don't see it going totally back. And and that's the signal that I got from Reagan as well that uh, he he wouldn't fully commit to you know reinstating the you know WOTUS rule. All right, well, let's move on to uh, China. You had a, a a big news item in your newsletter this morning that uh, China stocks are being revisited pretty sharply. Yeah. You know, earlier this week, and again, the wire services, I don't know why they don't cover these important things anymore <laughs> sometimes, but the United Nations Food and Ag Organization, FAO, raised their global corn utilization forecast uh, up 21, almost 21 and a half million tons from 2019-20. And USD, China's use by them was pegged at 190 million tons. That was up 15 and a half million tons from their December forecast. But here was the key. They pegged China's 2021 corn carryover, stocks if you will, at 139 million tons, but that was down nearly 54 million tons from December. Now, that, that's a, a shocker. But it may help explain why, when you look at some of the other China numbers that China gives out, why were they buying all this corn? Because their hog, you know, their hog population is going up. But this, this is another, uh, 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 you know, piece to the puzzle, John. It'll be curious. I know FAO put China's corn imports at 20 million tons, and that was up 10 from December. They were even lower than USDA. USDA has a WASD report, uh, S&D report coming out uh, Tuesday, you know, yeah. Tuesday, Tuesday, Tuesday yeah. and they're at currently 17 and a half million tons for total China imports. So it's going to be curious. I don't think they have a, a, a they don't have a choice. They're going to go up. It's it's how high they go up because the US ag attache 
in Beijing is carrying a corn import figure of 22 million tons, and they've been there for several months, and and it'll be curious to see if USDA goes that high. I think they'll probably, they'll, they've been stair-stepping it, but boy, you've got significant sales on the books uh, for China. So we're going to see if they can get to that 20 million ton area or higher. Yeah, and it's interesting because you know, especially after the January report and all the buzz it created, um, there there was expectation that this February report was going to be sort of ho-hum. And now there's, you know, an expectation that we could see uh, possibly another fairly bullish report come out on Tuesday. Well, look at corn. Last month, USDA decreased U.S. corn export forecast. Now, it looks like this month they're going to have to increase it. And I don't want to spend too much time on this uh, topic now, John, but we should develop it one for the next few weeks. But uh, in Missouri and in my emails and calls to farmers and ranchers, and I do not like saying this, they're losing uh, confidence. Uh, that's an understatement in USDA's uh, crop and grain stocks estimates from NAS, and they're losing uh, respect for some of their demand forecast. So, uh, and this is pervasive within the grain industry as well, based on my calls to industry analysts. So I think uh, uh, in the months ahead, something, a commission or something is gonna have to be done to regroup at USDA, looking at how they do things. Uh, they need to uh, get into the real world in a number of areas because, uh, you know, farmer. You don't want farmers to lose, uh, you know, total faith in these numbers. So that's mm -hmm. what I'm hearing. It's not me saying this. It's that's what I'm hearing from very sharp, you know, producers out there. Yeah, and a, a couple of things on that. One, um, I recently talked to uh, Lance Honig, who was chief of the crops branch at uh, USDA's NAS, um, and a fairly lengthy conversation with him, um, ba talking about some of these issues and and getting his reaction to the recommendations put forward by the American Farm Bureau Federation on uh, improving NAS. And as he points out, they're already doing a number of the things yes. that were recommended. Um, but I'd encourage folks to go uh, on agweb.com and and look up that that conversation because he does get uh, quite in depth uh, about some of these issues, in particular the issue of trust with farmers. The other thing is that um, we, have, we have a new chief economist at USDA, Seth Meyer, um, and in conversations with him, he's very interested in um, being, and I'm not saying that USDA hasn't been transparent in the past. They've been available really about any time we've asked, but he wants to step that up even a couple of notches. So I think you'll see even further communication from USDA about um, not only their reporting, with the methodology of the reporting. Well, Seth is a very good guy, has good training, uh, uh, you know, has been at USDA before, of course, was at FAPRI. When you work at FAPRI, I know you have to know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah so that's going to be interesting. But if I recall listening to Lance on Ag AgriTalk, I think he was, right? Uh, uh, no, this was a separate interview I did, I okay. did with him. Yeah. Well, I remembered on AgriTalk relative to the grain stocks, and you'll recall their last grain stocks report showed them go way down for both corn right. and soybeans. And I, I recall Lance saying it wasn't so much a problem with on-farm stocks. It was, right, was, was yeah. off-farm, commercial. Follow-up question is important to Lance. Why is that? Because the commercials ought to know, trust me, what they have. And I think there, there is a beat, a former beat reporter, I would zero in like a magnet on that one. What's going on out there in the, in the commercial sector? What is the responsibility? Don't, don't, I think they have to sign a document that if they misreport, and I'm not saying they do, but for him to say the problem was the commercial stocks, I think that needs to be looked at. Yep. Yeah, that, I agree. We didn't get into that particular issue on, on that conversation, but yeah, he did with Chip earlier on AgriTalk. So it, it'll be interesting uh, to follow that. Um, again, watch uh, Tuesday, see what the reaction is out of this WASDE report, because uh, there could be some uh, fireworks that we didn't expect even just a few days ago. Yeah, um, fourth gear on a bull market. Yeah, exactly. Um, which leads into our next issue. Uh, farm income forecast came out from USDA today. Uh, said expected to be down slightly, but we're not surprised because you don't have 
as many ad hoc payments coming into the system in 2021 as we did in uh, 2020. Um, and, and really, Jim, I guess the, the big news is, or the, the, the trend news is we're still uh, projecting above trend income in 2021. Yeah, from a, from a net farm income, they've got it down 8.1%, 2021 versus 2020 calendar year. And from a cash, which I always like better, they've got it down 5.8%. But let's go bottom line. This is too low for 2021. Uh, reason, I don't think they have the number of acres built up in, the, in that number for corn and soybeans. A lot of people in the trade seeing soybeans going up 7 to 9 million acres uh, this year versus last and corn 2 to 3 million acres. Now, they'll have some of that. And knowing USDA is usually pretty conservative on price forecasts, they're probably mm-hmm. too low on, on uh, average prices. Now, so I think, yeah, I think it's an easy prediction that this is going to go higher uh, eventually. But uh, farm state lawmakers can use this number for 2021 because they can say, hey, look, we need some more assistance here because we're down uh, 8%. So they won't hesitate to uh, you know, use that number, John. Well, and also it, it solidifies CFAP three a, a, a little bit. Not that I think there's any great danger in in uh, CFAP three money being taken away, but it's at least you know there's there's been hubbub around you know government studies about a CFAP three needed. Well, now folks can say, well, income is down. So we need uh, CFAP3 in the equation. Yeah. You know, I looked at the data. ERS is expecting supplemental and ad hoc disaster aid to total uh, just over $15.5 billion this calendar year. That's uh, $2.3 billion of uh, CFAP and $8 billion in payouts from that $900 you know, billion dollar plan approved, what, December 21st and signed into law six days later, I think. In 2020, last calendar year, those uh, supplemental and ad hoc payments uh, totaled $32.1 billion out of a total $46.3 billion in government payments. So that's just perspective here, John. Yeah, uh, make sure I'm following you right, because we've already got $15 billion worth of uh, payments locked in for this year uh, between the supplemental uh, 2.3 billion out of CFAP one and two, and then the additional 13 billion uh, out of uh, CFAP three. So, if there's anything additional uh, coming later on the year, that's going to be above and beyond that 15 billion that's already baked in, isn't it? That's why I say it's an easy prediction to say <laughs> they're too low. Yeah, they're too low. Yeah, you're going right. to see, and I hope I'm right there because I always like higher higher income income projections, you know. So, you know, bottom line, uh, it does show that, uh, thank goodness for those uh, aid payments last year, uh, we had a relatively good farm income situation. It always varies by, you know, commodity. And, uh, but even despite those shifts in incomes, I looked at USDC's the debt to asset ratio rising to 13.89% and the debt to equity ratio rising to 16 uh uh, point call it one uh, percent from thirteen point eight and sixteen point one percent for twenty twenty. So not not that much change. But uh, again, this is just the lay of the land aggregately in in agriculture. I was on a program for crop insurance uh, uh, also this week, and Dr. John Newton, who uh, just one of the best economists in ag, I think today, he was asked a question on average, what percent of gross, the, the gross numbers for, for agriculture is, is it, uh, you know, payments. And he said, well, on average, it's 5%, but last calendar year, it was 10%. Hmm. Now we're co- talking gross there. And, yeah. and I had never heard that figure before. So again, I like when people put perspectives on things. Yep. And as always, we encourage you to follow John Newton on Twitter because you're going to learn something just about every single day from him. And we have some charts from him. Did we put them up? I'm not. Yeah. Which one do you want to use? Well, number one, let's go to number one first, because that shows what farm income and expenses. Yeah. Yeah. This shows you the breakdown, Uh, you know, the government payments in 2021 at 25 billion. Uh, 391 billion in farm cash receipts. That's crop and livestock sales, and that's up uh, five 
0.5% from uh, 2020. And uh, what, $111 billion, I want to say? Yeah, $111 yeah. billion net farm income. That's down uh, $10 billion or 8%. And the production expenses increased uh, 3.5%. That's the down below. And that's just the graphic you know, that shows that under the breakdown. So you, you, you always have to look at the breakdown of where you're coming from. And then in mm. chart two, that just shows graphically what we said, net farm income down 8%. And look at the record year was uh, 2013, right? Yeah. yeah. We were only, what, about $2 billion away uh, from uh, meeting that record in uh, 2020. So, uh, you know, it, it, yes, it came from, you know, taxpayers, but it was still, uh, thank goodness, not, not a bad from a net farm income perspective. And then look at net farm income, you know, number three, uh, John, in the chart, net farm income with and without federal support. It, it shows you the gap that would have been, it would have been ugly news in the business of agriculture without that federal support share of the net farm income. 29%. Well, and even looking forward to, to uh, 2021, it's still a pretty significant share uh, it is. in that piece. So. It is. Yeah. Well, you don't clear it up in one year, as we well know. Uh, the cash drain that we've seen since uh, the peak, it looked like in 2012 from a you know working capital perspective. But these are the types of graphics, and these all come from you know, Dr. John Newton, that he's just a great communicator, and he's an economist who can speak, you know, English. And, yep. and he's yes. very good in this regard. It just just puts them where you can graphically, you know, see you know see a complex subject. All right, Jim. Before we uh, move on to the last subject, I want to move back to the last one because uh, Marco has a question here. Sure. Uh, wanting to know how long has the confidence in uh, USDA NAS uh, been diminishing? Um, well, and really, it's been probably the last three years is when it's been most significant, hasn't it? Yes. It, yeah, that's about not a bad time frame, John. Now, there's always been naysayers to USDA reports. That, that's been typical. I, I understand that. And, and in my speeches, I told the Missouri you know, pork producers, I said, look, I, I never, never like to speak ill of the task that USDA has. So it's not easy. And, and I've always said relative to NAS, again, I got to know those people. They're statisticians. They want to do a good job. It's just that it appears that something is awry. A methodology, I don't know. But I think it does need a government and industry look that, you know, every once in a while you have to regroup. And I definitely think it's this time. But the, really the last three years, I think, it's the volatility and, and and this is not just grain stocks or corn and soybeans. Uh, we keep saying, remember the uh, um, you know cotton you know crop that the 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 industry was so far ahead in noticing uh, the crop was not nearly the level uh, that USDA was saying in the early months of the summer last year. So it's time to look at uh, procedures, uh, get them up to date, uh, real time remote sensing. And uh, but we can't just leave it to government statisticians now to comment. We have to get uh, industry statisticians, analysts, etc., to look at procedures and to to help USDA. And if it's a matter of budget, usually I never say throw money at a situation. But you know the personnel. You know the you may have to up some salaries in order to attract some pretty uh, good people in the next decade or so at, at USDA. So they, they can elevate them to get that confidence back in, uh, in, in, the, in the US ag sector. Cause you don't want that to occur because I tell farmers, if you don't have USDA numbers out there to serve as a bellwether and to serve as a, as a litmus test for other private industry estimates, right. then too many in agriculture are gonna be uh, you know, on the negative side. In all fairness, Jim, I think I should point out, though, that, it, um, you know, a lot of the, the naysaying really reached a new level in 2019. Uh, folks said all through this growing season that the crop wasn't there that USDA said was there. At the end of the year, it turned out USDA was right on that one. Now, in 2020, we saw some pretty dramatic revisions, especially in that January report, as we talked about. Um, so something something missed 
in the November numbers. Um, and again, I talked to Lance about that and he didn't, um, you know, he, he said that they're following the data and I pointed out, well, then apparently there was some issue with the data, don't you think? And, you know, they're, they're going back and looking at it, but yeah. uh, again, there was, there was something between November and January they need to look at, but in the past, NASA's taken some hits that they didn't deserve, too. I agree there. That, I, that's total good perspective, John, yes. but And then I just remember the AgriTalk. I think Lance had said, you know, when you're looking at when they came out with the individual monthly estimates, you know, based on surveys, uh, it's mm. a difference between a forecast and an estimate. It's based on surveys. Uh, he said they were actually lower than than the average pre-report mm -hmm. trade estimate. But I called a longtime friend of mine, who I will not say who it was, who was a, a longtime analyst on the world board. He said, that's apples and oranges, because the trade doesn't have the surveys that NAS has. They're just usually looking at crop progress report and the, the, the quality of the crop and things like that. Maybe some in the industry has the surveys, but not to the degree that NAS has. So that's the feedback I got from that particular person. But the, the, where, the, where the, uh, the emotion gets in here, John, is we had a $2 plus rise in the corn market Right. Almost three, maybe. But over $2, that's safe, uh, since August. And, you know, it's it's easy to put out a line, USDA surveys cost a, a corn producer $2 a bushel. You know, that'll get your attention. Okay. Yeah. And that's what I'm hearing, you know. And the livestock people say, you know, well, if I would have known that the crop was that what uh, was not nearly that much. I thought the prices were going to go lower. I would have got more feed coverage. That's what I'm hearing right now. And it's not going away. So I just think, okay, it's, I'm hearing this from too many, not just farmers and ranchers, but really good industry people, some of whom I've known for 30 years, saying, you know, I, it, they need to improve. They need to improve at USDA, not just NAS, but at the World Board. Well, and, yeah, and and the bottom line is, even w w whether there's something wrong there or not, if there is a perception uh, problem, if farmers and the markets lose lose trust in that, um, that's going to make their data even uh, less accurate because people aren't going to cooperate, aren't going to uh, co uh, contribute data to those data sets for for USDA, both NAS and the World Board. So I agree, I agree. Very important. All right, well, let's close with. Um, we said we want to talk about the uh, impeachment trial a little bit. We don't want to get into the nuts and bolts of the impeachment, but uh, it impacts agriculture in that it could impact motion on issues important to agriculture, such as, as you mentioned earlier, the confirmation vote for Tom Vilsack and for Michael Regan, um, the latest round of COVID aid. Uh, what else is out there that could get backed up, Jim? Well, I think that's the biggest one is the COVID aid. And again, you can get very complex with this, but I'm going to put it in English. You're not going to see a final COVID aid measure signed into law, I don't think, until at the earliest, the end of this month, and more likely in early March. Reason? They're, they're going to start Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday next week in the House Ways and Means Committee doing implementing legislation of what we call the budget, you know, reconciliation bill. But that has to go through 12 committees, uh, John. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. And then is the Senate. And then you've got, they're going to differ. They'll have uh, some amendments probably in the Senate, too, as well. So we're talking time. Why do I say March? The the enhanced unemployment benefits ends in the middle of March, uh, 13th or 14th of March. So there is your end zone right there. They, okay. It won't go beyond that. But and then we got we have to know the parameters. Uh, uh, you know, Biden came on live in, in a presser today and made no uncertain terms that he wants to continue to go big. The one point nine trillion dollars. It depends. I keep saying I think the end result's going to be a little over a trillion dollars because I think they're going to have to whittle it down relative to getting even the 50 plus one votes in the Senate, because unless they can get one or two Republicans to offset uh, John Manchin's uh, negative vote, if they include minimum 
uh, an increase in the minimum wage, I think, even if it's over five years. That's going to be one of their caveats that they may use to get some votes. So what I just told you is we don't even know what the total number is going to be. It won't be over $1.9 trillion. It won't be as low as the Republicans wanted, the over, a little over $600 you know, billion. So we have some issues to flush out. Uh, the controversial $350 billion for you know, state and, and local aid, but all, both parties want the $160 billion for, uh, uh, you know, COVID aid, the vaccines right. and things like that. So I don't see any problem there. I'm just looking at some of the numbers Biden said, $400 million in weekly unemployment assistance, $170 billion for K through 12 schools and higher education. That's a chunk of change, even for education. The $15 minimum wage is is on there, John. And then it's got other uh, uh, it's got other features. I know they're going to put more food and nutrition funding is what you know Biden specifically mentioned. And I you know th there'll be a lot of money for food and nutrition, but I don't think specific uh, you know ag payments at this time. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said this is a a rescue package. And she even forecast we'll need another package later on this year that she called a recovery program. Hmm. So isn't that interesting? Uh, yeah. It may not be. I would have thought this may be the last one. That's not the case from the House perspective. Wow, that is interesting. All right. Well, we'll keep watching. And, and um, I guess the real key is going to see the Senate. If the Senate decides to split its time or go all out, um, with the impeachment trial until they get it done. Because there was, as you and I have discussed earlier, talk uh, about the Senate uh, doing either morning-afternoon sessions or splitting days or something like that so they could take up other business during uh, the impeachment trial. Um, and as you noted, some of these votes on confirmations, they can do that in a, a break, if you will, from the, yes, the impeachment trial. So. And frankly, leadership should want to show that, 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 that this... Uh, uh, impeachment trial is not bogging them down from their normal right. work. So uh, I think that if you're going to have votes such on Vilsack and others, uh, other cabinet members, that's really the reason why. They they want to show that they can walk and chew gum at the same time <laughs> on, on that one. So that's why I'm not going to rule it out. It depends. And also it depends on how long. There's a number of Democrats who are saying, you know, let's get this trial over as soon as we can, because they know the votes are just aren't there unless something major happens that we don't know about. So they want to limit it to maybe just a few days rather than a couple of weeks here. All right. Well, with that, let's wrap it up with where you're watching for Signal in the coming week. Uh, well, I've got Ag Letter to write uh, early next week, but Tuesday's USDA reports uh, right. for South American production uh, estimates, China estimates, what are the carryover for corn and soybeans? Because you're you're at rust levels right now in the soybean carryover. So the, if, if uh, you know, the trade's expecting lower carryovers, and this is why not much old crop is being offered for export right now, into the beans and we're going to see if usda continues to try to get more realistic on total china you know corn demand so all, all that and more john next week and, and of course up on the hill we'll track the confirmation uh you know votes uh, for vilsack and and and, and regan and and uh, and uh, also the the ins and outs of the COVID aid package that we've already dealt with all right, so if you're not already tracking him at profarmer.com, be sure to sign up over there to uh, see Jim's latest throughout the week. We'll join you back here again, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Central next Friday with Paul Neef for the Farm CPA. So be sure to join us for that right here on DC Signal to Noise. <laughs>